Hello, and welcome to Message in the Middle with Marianne. We all know that life is hard, right? It's messy, it's unpredictable, but it can be wonderful all at the same time. My hope is that we can take a deep dive into self-development topics and explore life's lessons through book clubs, conversations, and interviews. And together, we can uncover the lessons that others have already learned to help us navigate this crazy, wonderful ride called life. Hello and welcome to Message in the Middle with Marianne. Today I'm going to be doing a book review of The High Five Habit by Mel Robbins. And in case you're only tuning in for a minute or two, let me just say, I really love the book. The High Five Habit is a self-improvement book. It's focused on helping the reader deal with negative and self-limiting thoughts. It provides strategies for taking charge of your life by establishing a morning routine, eliminating negative self-talk, and transforming your life through positivity and confidence. I've done a lot of work in this space for the last few years, and these are all concepts I believe in, and I've worked to incorporate in my life and seen a difference. So I was definitely interested in seeing how Mel laid this out in The High Five Habit. The first few chapters of the book are all about framing up what the High Five Habit challenge is and why we should do it. Mel asks us to high-five ourselves in the mirror for five consecutive days. For some, this seems like a stretch right out of the gate. And let's be honest, it sounded pretty hokey to me too, and I know it did to some of you. I mean, for most of us, when we go to the bathroom first thing in the morning, if we look in the mirror, we usually look to pick ourselves apart. We notice all the things we don't love, the wrinkles, the nappy morning hair, the dark circles under our eyes. Well, maybe that's just me, but you know the drill. Most people aren't falling in love with themselves in the mirror every morning. Most are critical of what they see and avoid looking in the mirror altogether. This is typical behavior, and it is something Mel knew and acknowledged. She even noted that when she started this, she caught her reflection in the mirror and thought, ugh, but despite all that, or maybe because of it, she asks us to do it anyway. She asks us to get up each morning before we get all glammed up and just take a moment to be with ourselves, to acknowledge that you got up and that you're going to have a great day and that you showed up. To give yourself this gift is not just a nice gesture. It's self-validation and self-appreciation, which the book clearly points out is something most of us have no experience with or at least little experience. And it's probably why it feels weird at first. At least it did for me. But I have to admit that if you can get past the weirdness, it also did exactly what Mel suggested it would. It lifted my mood almost immediately and set a positive tone for the day. Having that moment to myself, for myself, before I got busy with my morning routine and before my mind started to go in 20 million directions running through my to-do list really made a difference. It almost immediately gave me a lift and made me feel like I could win the day. Mel explains this by reminding us that we've been programmed all our lives to associate high fives with celebrating victories. Whether it's a sports victory, congratulating someone for a job well done, or celebrating the completion of a project at work. We've all experienced high fives, and we all know how it makes you feel excited, pumped up, and just ready for celebration. But what really makes the high five habit so effective, according to the research in neuroscience, 
is that you're combining the act of giving yourself a high five in the mirror with an uncommon activity like brushing your teeth. This uncommon coupling causes your brain to form a new neural connection because your brain recognizes that something new and strange is happening. So it begins to pay attention versus being on autopilot like it is most days. This section of the book made me think of Dr. Joe Dispenza's work in breaking the habit of being yourself. In that book, it talks about how we go through most of our days on autopilot. We get up, we go to the bathroom, we brush our teeth, all without much thought. We even find ourselves from time to time driving to or from our jobs, getting to our location and not really remembering how we got there or the whole drive. It's because our brain is on autopilot. Dr. Dispenza tells us that if we take a different route to work or we point out something that we don't normally pay attention to, like finding out which houses have garages or which houses have garbage cans outside, it actually makes you pay attention. You're waking up your brain from autopilot and you're making it take note. When you do this, it will then be allowed to create new pathways versus just traveling down the old habitual ones. Similarly, When we practice the high five habit in our bathroom mirror every day, our brains pay attention. It takes note of what's going on and how we feel in that moment. And that pumped up feeling of excitement or celebration of congratulating ourselves is more likely to follow us throughout the day because we created a new neural pathway. The book goes on to reinforce this concept by telling us about a three-year study called Project Aristotle. The study was focused on determining what factors make the most high-performing teams in work and in life. What they discovered was something I believe with my entire being. The best teams create psychological safety. They create the feeling that others on the team have your back all the time and will help you be successful. They'll be strong when you're weak and they'll cheer you on in your successes and help you overcome your failures. This creates trust respect, and resiliency. And this really resonated with me in such a huge way because I've mentioned in previous episodes, I managed a large team for over 25 years in my corporate day job. That team was known for its strength, efficiency, and effectiveness. And even now, a year after I separated from the company I was with for over 25 years and sadly had to leave my team behind, I miss that team. I miss what we built together, how effective we were, and the unequivocal trust, support, and appreciation we gave one another every single day. So when Mel used this analogy to point out that for many of us, we consider a good day at work when we feel appreciated or part of a team like that, and that naturally it makes sense that we'd also have a good day if we give ourselves similar appreciation and support, it totally made sense to me. Once the book solidified the science and the outcome behind the high five habit, it moves on to why negative self-talk can be so damaging in our life and why we need to work to change our perspective. Mel says, shame is like a dark pair of sunglasses that colors everything you see. She tells us to forgive ourselves for all the things we did while we were just trying to survive, then evict the bully that's been living in our head. And boy, did I feel that. And it reminded me of one of my favorite sayings by Maya Angelou. I think you've heard me say it before. She said, I did then what I knew best. When I knew better, I did better. It's one of the things I've really used to help me release some of my guilt and give myself grace 
for not always showing up the way I wish I did in some of the difficult times my family experienced over the last 30 years. Mel's right. We have to take those shame sunglasses off. We have to know that in most cases, anything we did that was less than ideal, it wasn't done to intentionally hurt anyone. It was done because it was what we knew at the time and it was the only path we could find. Now that we know more, we do better. But we also have to give ourselves grace and let it go. This ties nicely into the next section of the book focused on freeing your mind from negativity doubt, and frustration, and learning how to open yourself up to receive positivity, possibility, and growth. To do that, we first need to understand how our mind works. And Mel explains that we have this filter in our mind called the reticular activating system. It's a network of neurons in our brain that acts as our mind's filter to ensure only the most relevant information reaches the level of conscious thought. It basically keeps your brain from information overload. While everything gets into your subconscious, not everything gets into your conscious brain. And it is what allows certain information into your conscious brain and blocks other information out. It does this based on programming it's received your entire life. Based on that program, it determines what feels relevant and important to you. So that's a lot of words, right? But what does it really look like? Well, the book gives us a very real example. It's one that I've talked about before because it's happened to me and probably to many of you. It's the example of buying a new car. Once you settle on a certain type of car and color, that same car will suddenly appear everywhere. All of a sudden, it seems like that's the most prevalent car in the world. Yet weeks ago, before you had the idea of purchasing the car, you probably barely ever noticed one, never mind in the color of your choice. Now though, because you're dreaming of owning one, visualizing yourself in it, they are everywhere. It's like this big shipment of cars just dropped down on the planet, your car, in your particular color. That is your reticular activating system, letting in new and pertinent information that wasn't relevant to you before. When I think about how that works, I think it's pretty neat. And the fact that you can change up what becomes relevant to you is pretty important. The downside, though, is the way that your reticular activating system works is that rejection, failure, disappointment, repeated insults can all get stuck in our filter and cause our mind to fixate on the negative information and ignore the positive information. Because of this, our reticular activating system sometimes needs a deep cleaning. How this plays out is if you constantly feel like you're unlovable or fat or unqualified, your brain takes in all that programming and will constantly be looking for evidence to confirm that you are unlovable or fat or unqualified. Ideally, that's not the type of thoughts we want our brain to tell us, right? But if that's how you're programming it, that is the evidence it's going to look for and find and deliver to you. The good news is that similar to the car buying example, we can change what our reticular activating system finds relevant and what it allows us to process in our conscious minds. If we start to feel lovable, worthy, confident, if we start to see ourselves completing the new task and that new role in our new life that we want and visualizing those things and linking those 
images with a positive outcome, we're training our brain to let in these new and relevant pieces of information. It will start looking for evidence to confirm that positive outcome versus the negative. But that doesn't just happen. We have to actively start putting optimism in front of pessimism so that our brain thinks what's important to us is different. And it starts to shift the filtering system. We have to break out of our standard thought patterns and take our default limiting beliefs and turn them around. We need to flip that script. Mel gives us some thoughts around how to do that by suggesting we add a mantra like, I'm not thinking about that into our thought process. Anytime we find ourselves engaging in self-criticism, self-doubt, or having one of our typical negative thoughts, and although it may sound too easy to be true, it really does work. I've been using this type of technique for a few years, and I've definitely found the more you can catch yourself early in the negative thought and stop it, the less frequently the thoughts will occur. Once you get to the point where you're pretty good at cutting the negative thoughts off at the pass, the last stage of reprogramming is to start replacing the talk track with the opposite type thought and to start acting like the person you want to be. You can't just think your way out of this. You can't just think your way to change when you have these deeply ingrained negative perspectives. You have to take action and it has to be consistent action. And taking your limiting beliefs and replacing them with a positive mantra is an action. Here's what that might look like. Instead of waking up and saying, ah, today's going to suck. I have so much to do. Instead say, today's going to be a great day. I'm going to be very productive. Instead of saying, I shouldn't be doing X because I'm not an expert, whatever X is to you. Instead say, I'm allowed to be a work in progress. I'm growing and I'm learning. Then once you get the knack of replacing those negative thoughts with a positive one, another action you can take is to start acting like the person you want to be. If you want to be someone who has an active lifestyle, just start by adding activity into your life. If you want to call yourself an avid reader, start by reading 10 pages a day. If you want to say you're a successful podcaster, just start a podcast. Like the good old Nike marketing campaign, just do it. Any little action that will allow you to honestly say you are that type of person to see you in that type of role will help reinforce those thoughts and let you bring in those positive confirmations. If we bring all those concepts together, here's what it looks like. When a bad thought enters your mind, stop it as soon as you notice it. Tell yourself you're not going to think that anymore. Then tell yourself something positive to replace that previous thought and move into action in a way that demonstrates that you believe the new belief is correct. A more concrete example might be having a thought that the scale was up a pound this week, so why not eat a whole bag of potato chips? As soon as the thought comes in, say, I'm not thinking like that. I don't eat like that anymore. And instead, go for a walk or have a piece of fruit. With time, it gets easier, and you really do start reprogramming your thoughts but you have to be consistent. In chapter nine, Mel writes that guilt is the number one thing that women executives ask her about, yet a topic that men rarely bring up. While I'd like to say this was shocking, I really didn't find it surprising at all. Almost every woman I ever talked to struggles with some type of guilt. If she worked outside the home, she feels guilty she's not having enough time with the kids or doing the house stuff. If she works in the home, she often feels guilty about not contributing financially. 
If you're busy raising a family or maybe live across the country, we often feel guilty about not spending enough time with our parents. In one way or another, somehow we always feel like we fall short and carry around guilt from the situation. Mel turned that a little on its side for me in this book. She said that when we continually feel guilty or apologize for everything, it's impossible to maintain a high five positive attitude. She said that living courageously and authentically means that we occasionally disappoint others and it's okay because we need to do what's best for us and be true to ourselves. But that also means that we'll likely have to rely on others from time to time for moral support, the occasional favor, or even a sympathetic ear. So instead of apologizing for everything, we should start saying thank you because it feels a lot better to feel grateful than to feel guilty. I really love this advice and I wish I knew it when my kids were younger. I had a pretty demanding job. I traveled quite a bit and my husband had to do a lot of the things like doctor's appointments and school meetings more than I could do. His mother and sister both shared in helping with before and after school duties when daycare wasn't an option, and all of that made me feel pretty guilty at times over the years. I wish I had known then to turn it around, to channel that into gratitude and thankfulness versus carrying all that guilt. In chapter 10, Mel wrote something that made me feel like she was looking right in my eyes and calling me out. She said, procrastination and perfectionism are the two deadliest dream killers, They slowly choke your ambitions to death until one day you wake up disappointed and resentful when you realize you never even got started. That is exactly how I felt about a year ago. But what she said next is the part that made me feel really seen, really called out. She said, you're not a procrastinator or a perfectionist or even an overthinker. You're just scared. And she was spot on. She was spot on when I knew I wanted to separate from my 25-year career, but I didn't do anything about it. She was spot on about me wanting to find myself again and return to making time to do some of the things I love, but put aside for so many years. There was no real reason not to do any of those things other than I was scared. And thank God the universe knew that and lined things up in the way it did to push me out of my comfort zone. I got a new job with a new company I'm enjoying, and I love this adventure and this podcast journey. Mel was right. The greatest risk is always doing nothing. You can always fail. You can always go back to doing what you were doing, but your dreams are your responsibility. No one's coming to save you and no one's coming to build them for you. You need to take charge. Like Mel points out in chapter 12, life is always teaching us something. You can always take lessons out of any failures and take them forward for the next time you try. Everything is preparing you for what's coming next. And as someone that truly believes everything happens for a reason, I'm so totally aligned with this thought. One of the best examples of this showing up in my life is around something I typically don't share. At 19, I was pregnant, estranged from my family, and I became homeless for a short time. It was a horribly lonely time in my life. But It was also a time that really shaped me and the woman I would become. And it was a time of great growth and a time to build my resilience. When going through that, I felt all the emotions you might imagine. And I certainly felt my share of why me's. But I made it to the other side. 
and fast forward 16 or so years and I had my first understanding of how that experience helped me. My teenage daughter's best friend was going through some difficult stuff with her family and needed a place to live. Without hesitation, we opened our home and we gave her a safe landing and we helped bridge the reconciliation with her family. Then, another 15 or so years later, my daughter befriended a young woman who just had a child. She had overcome addiction just shortly before becoming pregnant, and she lost both of her parents at a very young age, and then recently had lost her family's home. She had nowhere to go. Again, without hesitation, my doors were open, and we welcomed her into our home. I knew what she was going through, how she felt, and I knew how to help her. I believe now that what I went through set me up to have compassion and the means to help in those situations. I believe that God, the universe, whatever you believe is truly an amazing thing. And while it can sometimes seem cruel and things can happen without reasons that we'll ever understand, I really do believe that everything happens exactly like it's meant to. As we move to chapter 13, Mel gives us a technique to help us feel comfortable in our own skin and to calm our anxiety. She tells us to take a minute after high-fiving ourselves in the mirror and put our hand on our heart and say, I'm okay, I'm safe, and I'm loved, repeating it a few times if you need to. She shares that Dr. Judy Willis, a neuroscientist, explains this by saying, if you're in a stressed out state, your brain flips into survival mode. It tries to protect you and it won't let in any positive information into our higher conscious brain. Instead, all you can do is see the threat. But by trying this exercise, it makes you feel more connected to yourself. It makes you feel calmer. And then your brain can switch out our survival mode and be open again. I really think this technique can be calming. And I had a few of you tell me you were trying it and it was really working. Just remember, hand on your heart, you're safe, you're okay, and you are loved. As we wind down the book, Mel ends chapter 15 by writing, High five, my friend. I see you. I believe in you. Now it's your turn to believe in yourself and go make your dreams come true. So, like Mel, I want to say I believe in you too. And as someone who is finally pursuing some of her own dreams, even without all the answers, I say, try to remember what makes you happy and move in that direction. Believe in yourself because I believe in you. In closing, I want to read a paragraph from early in the book because I think it's one that you should think about every single day. The passage reads like this. One of the most important revelations you can ever have is that your life and your happiness begins and ends inside your own mind. What you say to yourself, how you treat yourself, and the thoughts that run on repeat are everything. It does not matter how successful, thin, famous, muscular, or wealthy you become. If you always focus on what's wrong with you, you'll never be happy. So my friends, I remind you that it's all about mindset. Whether it's trying to lose weight, leaving a bad relationship or job, or chasing your dreams, change your perspective. Flip that script. See yourself in the possibility and watch the evidence start showing up in your daily life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Message in the Middle with Marianne. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take a minute to share it and write a review as it helps bring new listeners to our audience. If you'd like to keep the conversation going between episodes, please join us 
at Facebook group, Message in the Middle with Marianne.